This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Russia exports a lot of oil and gas. So in response to the country's invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. and its allies are taking steps to squeeze its economy and hit Vladimir Putin where it hurts. President Biden banned imports of Russian petroleum. Germany halted a gas pipeline project and companies like Exxon and BP are pulling out of Russia. The president of Lithuania tells us his country is prepared to cut off Russian oil and gas imports. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline was due to bring gas from Russia to Western Europe, but German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said that he was putting its approval on ice. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. So if we're not getting oil from Russia, what does that mean for our supply? Will the scramble to find alternatives to Russian oil and gas accelerate the transition to renewable energy or lead to more extraction of fossil fuels? To dig into this question, we are joined by Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. She was Chicago's first chief sustainability officer and is now the director of Loyola University's Baumhart Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility. Hi, Karen. Hey, Sasha. Good to see you. Can you connect the dots for us, Karen? How is this a conversation about sustainability? Yeah, well, first of all, it's obviously devastating to be talking about a war related to anything. But the links to sustainability are fairly strong. Geopolitics and energy are incredibly connected, and they have been for a very long time. So this war in Ukraine is not happening in a vacuum. The Russian economy is heavily funded by global fossil fuel exports. In fact, Russia is the second largest gas exporting country in the world. And so that allows for the economic power at least to start this invasion. And then at the same time, the week of the invasion, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change from the UN, put out another report about the dire state of climate globally. So we see it in the funding and we also see it in the context in terms of what's happening. There's also an argument that the climate crisis is a national security issue. Can you explain? Absolutely. And the idea of climate as a national security threat is one that really took prominence, interestingly, in the George W. Bush administration. But it's an understanding essentially of three things. The first is that a changing climate actually impacts our physical military infrastructure. So, for example, if there's flooding, our Norfolk naval base gets flooded, and we have to deal with that from a strategic standpoint. The second is it leads to more extreme storms globally, and the U.S. military is the global force that tends to go in to support countries when they're dealing with devastating cyclones and typhoons. But the third is the one that people think about a lot, and that is it's an accelerant instability or a threat multiplier. So you take a situation globally between two countries or even within a country that has some instability, add drought, add water shortages, add heat extremes, and it leads to more and more instability. And the militaries recognize that. You know, it can be hard to prioritize climate in the middle of bombing and this refugee crisis. Can you make an argument for why they're linked? It it absolutely can be hard. And as you're thinking about the moment, everyone must do what has to happen immediately in terms of safety and security. Um, And you saw it actually in in President Biden's State of the Union, where he really didn't mention climate a lot, despite the fact that he ran on it so strongly. Right. But the links are really strong when you look at what do we do so that political conflicts are not being created in this way. And that is more about energy independence and being able to be less reliant on fossil fuels from a state that might not, in fact, be an ally. And I think we're certainly seeing that. 
So it's a question here of how do we set up our country and others for the future that we need, recognizing the inherent risks from geopolitical ties based on fossil fuels. Let's dive into some headlines, Karen. We know that Russia is a major producer and exporter of oil and gas. Give us a sense of that scale. Absolutely. Russia, they're the second largest gas exporting nation on Earth. So it is an incredibly large part of the global economy. And these are essentially global commodities. So in many ways, they're priced globally. And so that has been a huge source of the economics of the Russian state. So we see that and we all are looking at that as a, a tool and a platform that has enabled the Russian government to both pay for what it's doing, but also to recognize that there is some pain on the other side of countries if they were to start cutting them off. And that's some of what we're starting to see as the U.S. and other nations are making those steps to walking away or trying to walk away from Russian oil. Yeah, BP and Exxon, they've pulled out of Russia, but they're still going to extract fossil fuels from somewhere. Is that right? These are really tough questions for these companies. And to be specific, they own assets or are partial owners of assets that are Russian. And so they're essentially saying they're going to walk away and divest from those assets. So first of all, they have to find buyers. Uh, The prices are going to be incredibly depressed, so there's going to be huge economic consequences there. These are oil and gas companies primarily. They do have renewable arms that are much smaller. But the very near term is they have assets that are declining in value, and they've said they're walking away. So they are now going to be looking at economic consequences here from longstanding political ties in Russia. And so they will be looking for an economic pathway, but the politics are incredibly strong that they've all made the move, and it's been a very big and unexpected move. Well, we know President Biden banned imports of of Russian oil and gas, but is it more of a symbolic gesture? The U.S. imports a small amount of our energy from Russia, and so it's under 10 percent. And that seems small, but it's also part of a global commodity market. And so this is significant. We've already been in a, a situation domestically where gas prices have been rising. It's essentially due to the regrowth of the economy after COVID. So this is more than a symbolic gesture, but it's also in the broader context of multiple governments around the world instituting some of the harshest sanctions and coordinated sanctions that we've really seen in modern history. So this is part of a much bigger attempt to damage the Russian economy and to hinder and stop the attacks by essentially slowing down the economy of Russia. Europe, uh, particularly Germany, does get a lot of oil and gas from Russia. And and as I mentioned, they halted the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project. How significant was that move? That's very significant. And you're absolutely right that Germany is uniquely tied to Russian oil. And so the Nord Pipeline is essentially built. It goes under the Baltic Sea to bring gas directly from Russia to Germany. And Germany actually gets slightly over the majority of its gas directly from Russia. So when we think about geopolitics and energy, here's a direct example of Russia being physically tied to Germany and Germany being reliant on Russian oil. So the closing, the announcement that that pipeline won't essentially be permitted, they won't be able to use it, is absolutely significant. It's a part of a broader question now of how does Germany meet its energy needs. For decades, there have been worries and risks about Germany being so tied to Russia based on their inflow of oil. The Nord 2 would have exacerbated that, but now there's a very quick pivot. How do they walk away? So there's going to have to be a combination of factors as they look to make this very difficult choice from their near-term economy, despite the fact that it might be a good long-term strategic choice. Yeah, because it's not like Germany can 
immediately just switch to renewable energy, right? It sounds more complicated than that. It is, and it's in the broader context of Germany has been looking for and asking broad questions about fundamentally transitioning its energy base. They've made a move away from nuclear, and there are broad calls and broad goals, particularly within the EU and within Germany specifically, about a transition to clean fuels. That doesn't happen overnight. So there's a combination here of reducing, which is there's an efficiency angle of simply using less. That can that can take some of this. There might be a way to bring in some uh, fossil fuels from other countries. I think that can cover a bit here. But the real question is, how long term do they transition away from fossils? So as an example, their heating is really a major factor in terms of their consumption of oil mm-hmm. and of gas, really. So. What's the infrastructure look like? Well, if you have a heat pump, as an example, in your home, that runs off of electricity, not off of gas. So installing things like that throughout buildings is the way that you long-term cut that tie because you're fundamentally switching the fuel source that you're using. That is going to take a little bit of time, and it's something that Germany is having to look at very, very clearly as they're making these stronger stances to separate themselves from Russian oil. Well, as we know, Karen, gas prices are very high right now in Illinois. Uh, AAA listed uh, yesterday uh, the daily average for regular grade gas was four fifty seven. How does this compare to the prices that people with electric vehicles are paying or homes or buildings that rely on solar power? This is one of those incredible examples of if you're powering your car off of electricity, you're kind of immune right now from these changes in gas prices. Or if you're powering your home or your business on solar, chances are either you locked in a 10, 20, or 30-year contract or you're just using the power directly from your own panels and this hasn't impacted you. Darn, I should have taken advantage when I had the opportunity. Yeah, so this is these are examples of that long-term transition. When you are truly able to provide your own power under your own control and you've locked it in from a clean source, you have a different economic structure and you have a different risk profile. And we're seeing that in the extreme right now. What markers would signal to you that countries are really making the shift to invest in renewable energy on a long-term basis? I think we're seeing starts of some of that and this absolute crisis and devastating war in Ukraine is accelerating it. And I think what we'll need to look for is really that transition in infrastructure So what is the underlying source of the power? Are more countries building more renewables that they can control? And that's likely local. Solar, wind being primary examples. Are they building the battery infrastructure so that they have 24-7 power? Reliability is absolutely critical. That's largely about the electricity side. Then you have to look at the transportation side. So in the U.S., actually, transportation is our largest source of carbon emissions. And so that's that combination of are you seeing real policy and real innovation that can drive electric vehicles and that can power those electric vehicles. So you're looking both for infrastructure and then for the assets that would be in homes or businesses Mm -hmm. on the fleet fuel side as well as on the electricity side. So I know we've been talking mostly about the rest of the globe, but I I do want to bring it back home, Karen. So talk to us a bit more about Illinois and and where we're getting our energy from and, and the efforts underway in Chicago to help us transition to electric and solar? Illinois gets uh, its power in different ways. If you think about electricity, it's a very, actually a very big nuclear state and a very big coal state, followed by renewables and gas. If you think about the heating in a building, that's actually largely gas-driven. And then if you think about your vehicle, if you're not in an electric vehicle, you know that's obviously a different kind of gas-driven as well. So we have a mix here in Illinois in terms of our sources of power. 
The big piece of policy that is driving transition is the new CJA legislation that's really focused on the electricity side here. And then that's got specific requirements for the state to achieve 100% zero emissions from the power sector by 2045, to increase renewables investments fivefold in the coming decades. And that is also paired with some focus in that policy about electric vehicles and transportation. So that's a major policy backdrop that we're looking at. And then you can marry that into the city of Chicago, which is building out its climate plan right now and is looking specifically at the franchise agreement, which is its partnership with ComEd in terms of what power is supplied, how efficiency is thought about, and how equity is delivered. So there are multiple pieces in there that marry the state and the city that are looking explicitly to reduce energy use, to clean what we need, and then to think about transportation and a pivot. That was Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability Contributor. Thank you, Karen. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.